The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm the host of the podcast, also Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary, and it is my pleasure to welcome into the studio via Google Hangouts the Jerusalem Chamber. Guys, thank you for joining me. It's our pleasure. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. What we're going to be talking about today is the 187th Synod of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. It was held on June 27th through the 30th in Marion, Indiana at Indiana Wesleyan University. And the reason why I have four guests with me is because they run the highest profile podcast of the RPCNA. <laughs> the standards are low, Zach. <laughs> Thank you. One of one. And we, we hey. want to we put a shout out to both of our listeners right now. So. <laughs> the Jerusalem Chamber podcast is a collaborative effort between RBCNA pastors Sean Anderson, Kyle Borg, Nathan Eshelman, and Joel Wood. So far, by what I can tell online, they've recorded and produced 70 podcast episodes, most of which involve them working through the Westminster Confession of Faith. A few of the episodes are interviews with Reformed authors and scholars, including their longest ever episode, which was an interview with our very own Professor of Systematic Theology, Dr. Ryan McGraw. Does not surprise me. He's chock full of all kinds of wonderful information to share with his friends. I could go on in describing these eminent brothers, but suffice it to say that I'm grateful for their willingness to open up a window into this year's Synod of the RPCNA. Gentlemen, do you have any prefatory remarks that you would like to make before I dive into our questions? Yeah, I, I think this is Nathan. I think maybe the record should strike the word eminent and replace it with obscure, but go ahead. <laughs> Why are these Second. two things mutually Second. exclusive? That's ruled out of order, gentlemen. <laughs> proceeding to uh, our order of the day. All right, considering the fact that you all are a long way off from tackling chapter 30 of the Westminster Confession of Faith on your own podcast, I want you guys to briefly explain to our listeners the confessional basis for things like synods and assemblies. What what might be a couple of distinctives as well uh, worth highlighting about the RP way of conducting a synod? I think if you look at chapter 31, uh, it lays out uh, what synods and councils are to do. And and there you can see that they're to handle, essentially, uh, issues of doctrine, worship, government, and discipline, uh, especially paragraph um, three of the original confession. That's the most helpful. Um, so it determines controversies of faith and cases of conscience. It sets down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of the church. And it receives complaints in case of uh, maladministration, uh, appeals, and uh, authoritatively it determines uh, those appeals. Uh, and so uh, that's essentially the, the Synod is dealing with uh, doctrine, worship, discipline, and government that affects all of the congregations uh, within the Synod. And, and that would obviously distinguish us from congregational churches or independent churches, you know, our, our synod. And, and this is true of, of Presbyterians, whether it's synods or general assemblies. Uh, they are authoritative bodies, and, and we are to receive the decisions that synods and general assemblies make, not only because those decisions are in line with the scriptures, but also, as the confession says, because uh, the very power by which they are made is an ordinance of Jesus Christ. 
one of the things, and this is just for any ecclesiology nerds out there, that maybe is a little different between our synod and, say, for instance, the, the Orthodox Presbyterian General Assembly, is that uh, according to our Constitution, we distinguish in the RPCNA between what we call the fundamental law and the law and the order of the church. So the fundamental law is the Westminster Confession of Faith together with the catechisms and the Reformed Presbyterian testimony. Our law and order uh, includes our directories uh, for worship, our directories for discipline, our directory for government, uh, but also we include that actions of synod are part of the law and the order of the church. Uh, and that's a little different uh, than, like I said, for instance, the OPC. I actually, uh, Professor Ryan McGraw and I were just talking about this last week. Um, the OPC believes general assemblies are authoritative uh, because th that is confessional. It would be very anti-Westminster if they didn't believe that. But the OPC does not have that same provision that the decisions of general assembly are part of the law and the order of the church. Um, and, and as Ryan and I were talking about that, you know, he said, and sometimes that ends up being a way to circumvent the actually difficult process of changing the constitution. So the OPC wouldn't do that. Whereas the RP synod, uh, when we make decisions and determinations that is entered into the law and the order of the church, even if it does not amend or change, uh, the constitution itself. And, and, just one thing to add to that. Again, this is more RP specific, but um, e even though the uh, actions of synod are part of the law and order of the church, uh, that means that we have to do a lot of digging in our minute book sometimes to go back and research particular issues. Whereas this year, um, uh, Nathaniel Pachris, uh, who is a um, uh, a librarian, has his master's in library science, he is actually collating and putting together a book on all of the decisions of Synod, uh, which will be very helpful uh, work for our denomination in the future. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, so that answers both of those questions. I think that's a good survey of um, what is important to keep in mind as we move into the specific conversation about the RPCNA Synod this year. A couple of other background questions I wanted to ask. How many congregations are in the RPCNA going into 2018? We, we have 99 congregations in the United States, Canada, and then we have a, a presbytery, a small presbytery in Japan as well that was a, uh, a mission about 70 years ago when our missionaries left China and they began work in Japan. And then that was formulated as sort of a mission presbytery as well. So the, in, in the RP way, the RPCNA also includes Japan. And we also have a, a handful of preaching stations that are not included in that 99 as well. Sure. Sure. So you are just on the cusp of breaking a hundred. That's exciting. How many men came to Synod this year as voting commissioners? I think I think we had about 160. Does that sound right, guys? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so 160 delegates. And our, in, in the RPCNA, all teaching elders are able to be delegated, whether they're serving or not serving. And uh, ruling elders, congregations that are under 100 members send one ruling elder and— uh, and then if you have 100 to 150, I think you send two, and then you can send three if you're above that, something like that. But it's basically 
one ruling elder per congregation and then all of the teaching elders that uh, that choose to be delegated. If we ever have a church over 150, we'll let you know. Very good. <laughs> be sure you send me that news blast. I want to interview the, the first uh, mega church pastor <laughs> of the RPCNA. <laughs> All right. And what was the, right. the split between ministers and ruling elders this year? I imagine you didn't have all of your teaching elders there, right? Right. Did anyone catch those those numbers? I looked for the division, but I couldn't find it. Uh, it, it it's worth noting, at least in my mind, that of first-time delegates, we had 16 first-time delegates this year, so about 10% of the whole synod was first-time delegates, and that was divided equally between teaching elders and ruling elders. So we had eight first-time teaching elders and eight first-time ruling elder delegates. We have a we have a pretty good balance of of ruling and and teaching. It's it's uh, usually higher on the teaching end, of course, but uh, uh, we don't we don't suffer the same problem as some denominations that have a very low turnout of ruling elders. Yeah, I mean, we only have about three times as as many um, ruling elder commissioners as you guys have total commissioners. So we ha- we do have a, a pretty low turnout compared to <laughs> compared to the whole uh, in the PCA, and that's what I mean by we, since I, I'm a PCA guy. But I was speaking with uh, Jim Stevenson yesterday about the OPC uh, General Assembly, and and we explored for just a quick minute um, what it means to be a delegated assembly. And now. It doesn't sound like the RPCNA has a delegated assembly in the same way, or a delegated synod in the same way that the OPC has a delegated assembly. So when you use the word delegates, you just mean what maybe we would call commissioners, people that are going as voting members of synod, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they are they are delegated though. Uh, sessions will delegate the ruling elder and uh, a serving teaching elder, and then presbyteries will delegate any teaching elders that are not serving. So they're delegated, but it's not in the same way that the, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church delegates uh, their men. Right. Yeah. The, the language we use is certified, certified delegates. So we'll have a number of people who have privileges to speak on the floor, even from other um, NAPARC denominations. Um, but yeah, in terms of who's voting, they're certified delegates. But we're not lim- we are limiting every congregation based on how many members they have, but everyone has representation. Considering how many churches you have and how many commissioners or certified delegates you had, it sounds like nearly every congregation is represented by somebody who's meeting in that congregation weekly. You might have a few congregations that aren't represented at all due to size or just how far away they are. But would that be an accurate statement to say that every congregation or almost every congregation is actually represented by a certified delegate there in the uh, in the synod? Yeah, it's, that's fair. Moving on, who served as moderator this year and and why was why was that remarkable? The election of your moderator for the synod. There were a couple of things that were a little more remarkable about the moderator post this year. Um, I serve as chair of the Business of Synod Committee, and uh, part of the work of the Business of Synod Committee is to kind of field who might be nominated for moderator. And traditionally in the RPCNA, the position of moderator is uh, kind of a post of honor. It'll be a minister that's retiring that year or is close to retirement or... um, 
like our 200th anniversary for our seminary, Jerry O'Neill was nominated as moderator, things like that. And typically what happens is nominations are opened on the floor. That person is nominated, sometimes with a lengthy speech, as to why they should be nominated. And then very quickly, nominations are moved to cease, and that person is elected moderator. In fact, this is such the practice that... um, Uh, I heard a a story from our history where a number of years ago, the Synod was in Kansas City, sweltering summertime in the Midwest, and one man showed up to Synod in a coat and tie. And somebody nominated somebody else, and that nomination was voted down, and they... Everybody knew, oh, no, it's the guy with the coat and tie is supposed to be the moderator. (laughs) So... Um, but that <laughs> that shows you uh, kind of the, the practice. So this year, uh, for the first, not the first time ever, but the first time in really recent history, we had a runoff election for moderator. Uh, the Business of Senate Committee thought through, because we had two discipline cases from two different uh, presbyteries, um, plus you start, you know, Joel, I'm going to interrupt you real quick, just for clarity. We did not; ha- we had one discipline case, an appeal and a complaint. Yep, we had a p- an appeal and a complaint. Thank you, gentlemen, for that correction. We're we're used to we're used to correcting yes, you, Joel. I know, I know. Um, we had two very sticky wickets showing up at synod this year, uh, and so when you start knocking out this presbytery and that presbytery, then you start knocking out the interrelatedness of the RPCNA, um, it, it really dwindles. Who can really serve and serve well without there being an appearance of favoritism or things like this? So the Business of Synod Committee actually came with a man in mind uh, that we were going to put forward as moderator. Uh, the Sabbath before Synod, it came to my attention that some other men in the Senate had been caucusing and had a man that they thought would do a good job and they wanted to put forward. So I called uh, the, um, the quasi head of that group and he and I had a great conversation and we decided uh, to, to encourage a runoff election. And it was handled very well. It was handled very humbly. Um, this, is, this was not a synod that anybody was looking forward to being the moderator at, but men, we had two good qualified men ready to serve. Um, and so then that comes to who was elected, um, ended up being the man that the Business of Synod Committee put forward, and that was J. Bruce Martin, who is getting ready to retire from our Ridgefield Park, New Jersey uh, congregation, and had also served a couple of years ago when he retired after 30-some years as our clerk of Synod. Um, And so uh, he did an admirable job for the length of business, uh, the details that had to be held on to in the process of business. And I, I think that his relationship as a pastor to the rest of Synod put him in a good place to help the business move forward um, in, in the way that it did. Um, so, you know, by example, our Wednesday, we, had, we uh, convened at 8.30 in the morning 
and we recessed at 11.15 that night. Now, we had our appropriate breaks for, uh, we have a break in the morning, break in the afternoon for coffee. We had a break at lunch. I had a break for supper, but that's a really long day uh, to put in, and, and that was, that entire day was set aside to hear an appeal. And so uh, that that was one matter of business, other than a few uh, orders of the day early on in the morning, that that day was spent in an appeal. And so uh, Bruce Martin, we wanted somebody with experience in the position to know what the, pre- to know what the pressure of felt like, um, and also someone who knew uh, Robert's rules without having to constant. I mean, we, we, we lean on our parliamentarians a lot, but it helps when the moderator has a running sense of what's going on and what can happen in the business at that point. So uh, Jay Bruce Martin, I think, did a fine job for us this year. And the real question is, was he wearing a, uh, a coat and tie? Yes, he was. I believe he even wore a bow tie i believe he even wore a bow tie at one point in honor of our uh southern fraternal guests oh cool yeah you know you dress for the job you want not necessarily the job you have but he he did not he did not wear a bolo tie in honor of kyle and the kansas delegation though <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure he'll do it next time he's moderator but he did wear chaps <laughs> so i don't know <laughs> He rode into synod on a cow. <laughs> I just got a mental picture of Bruce in chaps, and it won't. it won't go away. All right. Speaking of your uh, your southern friends who are serving as fraternal delegates, uh, this year you had my good friend Scott Cook, who's a who's in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. He addressed the synod as um, as a fraternal delegate from the ARP. Someone please explain briefly the shared history between the RPs and the ARPs and what next year's synod has in store for furthering the, the relationship between the two. Yeah, I can hit some of the history um, <clears throat> briefly. <laughs> uh, you have to go back to Scotland and uh, appreciate that the um, when you have the um, glorious revolution, as many call it, in uh, 1688... Um, we did not go back into the Church of Scotland, the the, the Covenanters, or, or a, a branch of the Covenanters, to be fair, because many Covenanters did go back into the Church. Um, eventually, the uh, Associate Presbytery would uh, break out of the—separate uh, from the Church of Scotland in 1733 over issues of um, the Gospel and Doctrine of Justification and, and some other things. And they were a Covenanting Church— um, uh, we, uh, did not organize into a presbytery in Scotland until 1743, but as I said, we remained, uh, apart from the church. Um, then you have, um, ministers and, and missionaries uh, sent over from both Scotland, uh, uh, from the APs and the RPs, but also from Ireland. There are Irish RPs as well many who had fled during the killing times into Ireland. So uh, the point is, is that you've got AP missionaries, RP missionaries, and a slew of other denominations associated with other national churches of Europe during the Ref- from the Reformation. And so in 1782, these APs and these RPs felt um, somewhat um, scattered, uh, somewhat small, and they decided to unite um, and 
And so that's what happened. And so what ended up happening were three groups were formed because not all the APs went in. So there were still APs in America and not all the RPs went in. And so there were RPs in America. And then there were ARPs in America. Um, that's generally the history. Uh, there are a number of things you could look at then, but we've always been these cousins that have, have been in conversations and in dialogues. Um, there was an opportunity. We talked about union in um, uh, 18, the 1840s, and uh, we never, the RPs never joined, but uh, you know you know the history of the uh, United Presbyterian Church. I said 1860s, sorry, 1860s. Uh, so that's the history. If you look at statistics, uh, the RP Church is about seven thousand members, uh, roughly, with a hundred just a, just as I said, almost a hundred congregations, and the ARP is three thousand seven hundred members. Thirty-seven, thirty-seven thousand. Sorry, thirty-seven thousand, thirty-seven thousand. Sorry, yeah, thirty-three thousand members at uh, First Pres Columbus. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, and. Um, with just about 300 congregations, I think. So, uh, you know, they have three times as many congregations, five times as many plus uh, members, and um, that's our history. I, I would add to that as well, Sean, that uh, Sean mentioned that in 1782, when the Associate Presbytery and Presbyterians and the Reformed Presbyterians merged to become the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church— he mentioned that associate brothers and reform brothers stayed out and uh, maintained their own their own presbyteries. In 1969, the remaining associate Presbyterians congregations that were still left in the United States merged with the RPCNA. So, in in actuality, we have two ARP branches in in America. Uh, the RPCNA being the the 1969 merger of a small amount of associate Presbyterian churches and the Reformed Presbyterian churches, and then the 1782 body as well. So, um, you know, we both have associate and Reformed Presbyterian uh, uh, congregations within our within our synods. Increasingly at Greenville Seminary, this history is being replayed and being taught in our classrooms uh, right from the very first year that our students come. We have a Presbyterian church history course that, though it majors on mainline Presbyterianism, I put that in scare quotes, not just the PCUSA, but just churches that all um, look back to 1706 as that first presbytery meeting in Philadelphia. So you got the USA Church, of course, the OPC, the PCA, the EPC, um, and other churches that have spun off from there, including Cumberland and Bible Presbyterian and whatnot. Um, but increasingly, Dr. Wilborn is drawing into the story, the, the story of the churches that maintain an organic connection to Scotland, the ARPs, the RPCNAs, and the other spinoffs off of, off of your two branches. And it's, it's been a great blessing as a student at Greenville to get this distinctively Presbyterian church history education and getting a grounding in the full um, breadth of the American Presbyterian experience, whether it's more Scottish-flavored or not. So um, all that's good. I think I interrupted Sean, who's going to chime in with some additional data here for us. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that um, in 20... 20- uh, 14, we had a concurrent synod. Uh, the, the, we were invited to um, the uh, camping headquarters bon of, in Bon Clarken, yes, 
uh, for the ARP. And, uh, and so that was an opportunity for us to get to know one another better, uh, uh, outside of synod meetings. We had times to talk about how each denomination is involved in missions and church planting and other things like this. Um, and then we've invited them, uh, the ARP, uh, to join us for a concurrent synod in Beaver Falls next year, which is the, where we have our college, Geneva College. And so we are also going to have a uh, conference, a joint conference on worship and uh, psalm singing uh, prior to our concurrent synods. So hopefully we actually, after the joint conference on worship, hopefully we actually go into the, co- the co-occurring synod uh, rather than just walk in separate directions. But we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Can you guys give us a high-level overview now of what was actually covered in this synod? We've already touched on a few things. We know that there is a discipline case, there is a complaint, uh, but what other kinds of things do the RPs talk about when they get together in, in synod? There were some decisions that were made pretty quick um, that didn't cause too much uh, of too much problems. Um, a couple of churches were transferred into new presbyteries, uh, due to different circumstances. Um, There was a committee that reported back on the nature of tithes and offerings. Uh, One of the questions that seems to continue to circulate in the RPCNA for at least the last decade is, uh, what is the most appropriate way to gather tithes and offerings? Is it an element of worship? Our Constitution says it is an ordinary part of of worship. Um, But one of the questions is, well, does that mean you've got to pass the plate? Does that mean you can have a box in the back? What what does that mean? And what we decided was we're going to have our congregation stand up at the time of the offering and take the wallet of the person in front of them and put (laughs) and give as much as they think that person should be giving. And we really foresee a time of abundant blessing in the church over the next few years. I believe that recommendation <laughs> failed, Joel. I'm sorry. Oh, that's good, Joel. That was good. We uh, The recommendation was that uh, basically we leave it to the discretion of local sessions how the tithes and the offerings are collected. So whether that's passing a plate, a box in the back. There was also a committee last year that we had assigned to look at the nature of divorce in relation to desertion. So the Westminster Confession with the Bible rightly recognizes two grounds uh, for divorce, adultery, and then that willful desertion that cannot be remedied by church or state. Um, That committee uh, reported, they brought a very brief report, and and the short and sweet was that uh, that report has been recommitted and the the synod was not satisfied with the exegesis or the historical research, uh, even the pastoral applications. And so that committee will be meeting again this year. We also, as as a synod, um, and I know this is common with other synods and GAs, we have worship daily in the morning. So we hear preaching from uh, men, usually from different presbyteries. And then uh, every year at synod, we have one brother from the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church preach for us. And uh, that year it was Reverend Cook that you've already mentioned as a friend of yours. So we had him not only address us as uh, fraternally, but he he preached for us as well. Um, we had a study committee on prison ministry and whether it's appropriate to bring uh, those who are incarcerated into the membership of the church that was sent to a study committee to make decisions on. Uh, we have uh, 
we hear reports from from each of the presbyteries as to what's going on specifically in their in their presbyteries. Uh, we have several several standing committees that that we hear from as well. We hear from a committee on church history, a committee on graduate studies. Uh, we have what's called the RP Global Alliance Advisory Committee, and that's sort of a committee that deals with the relationships that we have with other RP bodies throughout the world, because there's Reformed Presbyterians in Scotland and Ireland and Australia and France, and um, and uh, I mentioned Japan and, and other parts of the world as well. Uh, we hear from the missions organizations of the church, the both globally and home missions, and then we have other missions uh, agencies, one called the East Asia Commission and one that is uh, dealing with with Central and South America, and that's called CASA. That shows how how uh, how how uh, fun we can, yeah how fun we can be as a as a synod, and we we hear from uh, from the uh, Reformation Translation Fellowship. We hear from what's called the RP Women's Association that deals with our with our home for retired persons and. Uh, they've they've overseen that since the since the 1800s, and then uh, Kyle mentioned some of the special committees. We also have a committee uh, that's studying the mediatorial kingship of Christ, uh, with the purpose of giving applications for definition and then application for the the modern age as well. We had some other communications as well. Yeah, there are, there are a few other things. One, uh, adding our final vow of church membership, uh, which is simply a statement that you understand you'll stand before the Lord someday to give an account. Added that to our ordination vows just to, to bring a, a consistency there. Um, as, as Kyle mentioned, there was one of our Canadian churches was transferred to, to the Pacific Coast Presbytery since Seattle is the, the closest congregation to them. A uh, church plant in Birmingham, Alabama, that will be handled by the Presbytery I'm in, the Presbytery of the Alleghenies, not the Great Lakes Gulf. Um, there was also uh, uh, some interest in how absentee ballots are used in voting, uh, particularly for uh, pastors as, they, um, as they're being voted on by congregations. Um, uh, then also a paper a paper came by one of our uh, from one of our ruling elders through the Atlantic Presbytery on recusal in voting in decisions that lower courts have made. Well, I like the terms narrower court and broader court. I don't like higher and lower. Um, but when the broader court is voting on an issue, what rights does the lower court have in voting on that? And so that's been. Uh, sent on for further study, um, but that's so. You know, we have some bland business. Uh, then we have the things that are a little more touchy, a little more sensitive, and uh, cut a little more at the heart of who we are. I think one thing that um, that may be of interest to your listeners, Zach, would be uh, we had a communication from the Great Lakes Gulf Presbytery considering or f- concerning uh, one of our former congregations called Park City. Uh, Sean, since you're in the Great Lakes Gulf, maybe you could briefly comment on that. <laughs> uh, essentially, uh, the issue was when we did bring those 
associate Presbyterian churches in. <clears throat> At the time, we had a vow uh, in which the uh, ministers and elders promised not to partake in drinking alcohol or smoking tobacco. Uh, <clears throat> and yet we do not um, require the same provision for the ministers and elders of the AP churches. And um, the issue was uh, one man was who was RP um, was being uh, disciplined for, because <clears throat> he wanted to smoke tobacco and he did smoke tobacco. And they said, you can't do this. You've taken a vow. And he, and so they, the, that congregation asked, could you please just tell us if we're all not allowed or if we are allowed, but just have, let's have this one standard for our, our whole denomination. And, uh, for whatever reason, the Synod refused. And, um, uh, one of the results of that, along with probably other reasons, uh, we, G.I. Williamson ended up leaving our denomination. And so this was a request that we would try to make things right, that we would ask for forgiveness for, uh, holding a double standard and, and putting a stumbling block before, uh, this congregation and other ministers and elders. Uh, and so uh, essentially because we started looking at it and talking about it and realized that, um, we'd like to do this if possible, but there might be some other varying issues that, uh, need to be talked about or corrected. Uh, we ended up putting it into the hands of a commission. So they have the full right of sitting now to address that issue. And there was some communication actually informally with, um, Dr. Williamson and, uh, who held no, um, hard feelings or bitterness or offenses against us. And that was, we're glad to hear that. Uh, but we're looking forward for the commission's report next year. Now, <clears throat> we've already hinted at um, probably the most dramatic and time-consuming matter that came before Synod, and that was um, the, the the judicial case that came up on appeal. Without getting into the discussion of the persons involved and, and, and the, the personality kind of things, what were the issues that were being addressed, and what was the ultimate outcome of this appeal brought before the court? One of our retired ministers brought a paper to his session. Uh, the session put it to Presbytery. Uh, the Presbytery assigned a committee to work with this man and to uh, understand the extent of this conviction and to work with him to try to align him better with uh, the teaching of the church. Uh, and it came out in that working with him uh, that he felt he could no longer in good conscience affirm uh, his ordination vows on this point. And that's been, that, that's the nub right there, is, is uh, the, the impressions that have been uh, had in what exactly was being tried. And, and so in this dialogue with him, uh, was that he could not uphold that teaching anymore. Now, you know, we're talking about a, a dear brother whom we love and respect. I, I appreciate this man's... Uh, uh, he has a, he's always had a fire in his eyes that I've really appreciated. Um, and so this is in no way uh, a personal or some, you know, something like that. This is... Strictly, what can we hold to as ministers in the RPCNA and still be in the bounds that we need to be in? Uh, 
And so uh, that was uh, there was a trial held on that issue, and then uh, the results of that trial, um, him being found uh, guilty, were appealed to Synod, and so that was appealed two years ago. And last year we uh, fumbled around with how the process should go. Uh, the, the Synod um, confessed and repented to all the parties involved for our mishandling of that a year ago. Uh, that was graciously accepted. The reason we fumbled and stumbled is because we, we, we don't have a lot of discipline cases in, in the RPCNA. I, I like to say we do relationships really well, and we solve a lot of problems through uh, relational communication. We don't we don't really handle uh, discipline that often. Uh, as this appeal came to synod, it it was basically um, about a hundred years since we had something quite similar come come before our synod. So it wasn't like we were so used to doing this that uh, that we were able to handle it with. Um, with a lot of ease because we just don't, we don't do it very often. And, um, and because we're a very relational church that can make these matters all the more difficult to process when we do need to come at them from a judicial aspect. Um, but as we, as, as business of Senate, as we were laying out, um, you know, how we were going to record the appeal all of these things, the question that, that kept ruminating in me is, what would any of us want that are part of the Synod, what would any of us want in place if we were the man that was appealing before uh, the Synod? How would we want it recorded? How would we want it uh, you know, kept? How would we want it handled? And um, I think that as difficult of a day as it was, as painful of a day as it was, um, I think that put us in a good posture uh, to handle it lovingly and to make sure that things were recorded in such a way so that there is a good record uh, for those parties that were so, involved. So this appeal was filed with, with Synod, um, which of course is a bedrock of Presbyterianism, a pillar of Presbyterianism is the right of appeal. And uh, this individual uh, really had what we call 15 specifications of error, where he noted uh, different injustices or undue severity in censure against this presbytery that had disciplined him. And so our synod was asked, we had to vote on every single one of those specifications, whether or not we think in his defense he met the burden of proof to to show that this presbytery had in fact erred. And uh, again, this took all day. This was an exhausting process, but the end result was that of those 15 specifications of error, uh, Synod determined only 14 of them could actually be voted on. And out of those 14, uh, the Synod only sustained one of the specifications of error. Um, now this brother had been disciplined under two charges, and the result was that our synod upheld one of the charges, our synod overturned one of the charges, um, and we did keep in place on this brother the suspension that the presbytery had imposed upon him in censure. Uh, he is not deposed. Uh, he is suspended 
from the ministerial office. Uh, it was very clear that he still retains the privileges of membership. Uh, it's just that he has been suspended from being able to exercise the privileges of the office of an elder. So it, it was an exhausting day, uh, but it, it was that's how we carry it out. And I would say of, of the one point that was thrown out, the appellant and his counsel were in agreement with that as well, that it was just a, a factual statement that was not something that could be voted up or down. So we didn't willy-nilly throw out one of his, his points. They were in agreement that this was just a factual statement and we needed to press on with the others. And if I'm hearing this correctly, this gentleman, this, this brother of ours, is still welcome to the table. He's still welcome to worship in RPCNA churches. He's still a member in good standing. He's just um, not permitted to, to preach or to, to administer sacraments in the RPCNA. That's right. And I, I think that, that that's such an important point um, because there's some miscommunication as to what the Synod did with this brother and... Uh, the fact is, he is a communicant member in good standing. He is someone that we recognize as a Christian brother and a member of the Reformed Presbyterian Church. The The Synod did not, quote-unquote, kick this man out. Uh, the Synod upheld the, the, uh, pe- the Presbytery's decisions, and yet, even as the moderator pronounced the judgment, uh, he cried. It was, it was with tears— And the sobriety of the synod as that judgment was announced, uh, it it, it was something that really showed the the grace and uh, the godliness in at least the attempt to uh, uphold this decision unto the glory of God. Yeah, and and with that, too, the the, the distinction here is, is very necessary. Um, because we we have not said, or our courts have not said, that this position that this this elder uh, embraces, we have not said that it touches upon a credible profession of faith. Um, but the qualifications for ministry are different than the qualifications for membership in the church, and that is extraordinarily important to keep in mind. We don't just require a credible profession of faith in order to be an elder in the church. We do require a higher standard. And so while we don't, the Synod uh, agreed with the Presbytery of Alleghenies that he is not qualified right now to to, to exercise that office, um, he has not been, his membership and, has and not been. And when you touched. say a higher standard, I think... What what you really mean is it's just a different standard. It's not that ministers are called to be, um, uh, how would I say, it? Super, super holy men, right? I mean, we are supposed to be models and exemplars right, to those right. that the Lord puts under our care, but it's that we perform a different function than, than, than the rest of the membership. As men called to the ministry, we are called to preach the truth, and in a confessional church, the, the truth is embodied in, in our doctrinal statements, in our confessional documents. Um, this, is, this is what we proclaim to the world. This is what our church believes, and if a minister is found to be out of accord with that, then how can he rightly perform the functions of a minister when... Right, and, and Zach, not only to preach the truth, but to believe and accept the system of doctrine. Um, we don't require our members to do that. So, you know, even if it's not an overt preaching against, we do, you need to believe and accept the system of doctrine that is found in our standards. Exactly. 
So what what moving on from this particular case then what developments took place this is probably a, a happier subject what developments took place in the area of ecumenicity and interchurch relations I, I think you all were moving at least a step closer to to fraternal relations with a particular denomination in the Midwest if I'm remembering correctly yeah we uh, we voted to ask the heritage reformed church to enter into uh, fraternal relations with the Reformed Presbyterian Church. And um, that's a that's a conversation that's been going on for for several years. We've had um, we've been what's called observer status with the Heritage Reformed Churches for several years. And uh, in the the discussions through NAPARC and our inner church committees, we um, we've come to uh, recognize that that we do have a lot in common with these brothers and uh, asked to enter into fraternal relationships w- with them. Now, for myself and, and Kyle and Sean, each one of us have attended the seminary, the denominational seminary of the Heritage Reformed Churches. Sean uh, graduated from Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, but started at Puritan Reformed Seminary. So um, that it, it was something that that was uh, meaningful to us because we have a lot of good relationships with the the pastors in in that denomination, and um, so we'll see what what the Lord does with that. But it's a I think it it was a good move on on behalf of our denomination. Speaking more broadly, I think it's it's always uh, wonderful just to hear about the other denominations, how we can pray for them. Um, it was it was also encouraging to hear a number of them uh, of our brothers get up and and actually commend us in the way that we were handling the judicial process from a third party perspective. That's very important. Um, at, at the same time, uh, uh, it was it was actually wonderful to have um, Kyle Sims, uh, a dear brother in the ARP, step forward even in the midst of that judicial process and offer to pray for us before we went to voting. That was. Uh, he did that actually last year and this year, and uh, we really appreciate him. Uh, so it, it's it's always good to catch up. It's always good to to talk about uh, how other denominations are are doing. Yeah, and we we did hear from other from other uh, denominations with whom we have fraternal relations as well. We heard from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. We heard from the the PCA, and the PCA brother was so satisfied with the RPCNA's synod that when he got home, his congregation actually voted to move into the RPCNA. So really, uh, I don't think, <laughs> well, uh, it, that the history is probably a little conflated, but that it, it, it is, a, it is a true statement that the, a PCA congregation coming into the RPCNA, um, we for heard, the record, they voted on June 9th, yeah, that's which right. was a couple of weeks before our Senate. So. Oh, is that right? Historical okay. revision. You heard it here so first. We, we, heard from, we heard from the United, Re- United Reformed Churches. Um, we heard from uh, – was there an RCUS delegate there? Okay. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's just we really love the fraternal relationships that we have with – with brothers in other reform bodies, we're uh, we're not interested in being a, a body unto ourselves. We really do look to the wider uh, Napark churches and and uh, respect them quite a bit. 
Evangelical Church of Cyprus, and the New Reformed Presbyterian Church of Bolivia. In Bolivia, that's right. There was some news um, coming out of your mission fields, and so how are the international missions works that um, actually um, Kyle and I spoke quite a bit about last year, I think, how are those works coming along uh, here in 2018? Well, we have we have several missionary works throughout throughout the world and that were reported on. I noted uh, earlier that we have a presbytery in Japan, which is still uh, funded through our global mission board, and uh, the the synod and the Japan presbytery are currently trying to work through uh, what that what that relationship will look like in the future. Our desire, or at least the global mission board and others. I won't speak on behalf of the whole synod for that, but there is a desire to see the Japan Presbytery organized as a national church, as the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Japan. Uh, so there, there's some discussion on that that is going on right now. Uh, we heard word from our missions in South Sudan. Uh, South Sudan is a rather young uh, mission with the RPCNA, probably 15 years old as a as a, um, as a mission field, and we have a, a, a presbytery there that is organized as their own denomination with many preaching stations and a lot of work uh, going on there unto the glory of God, including, uh, you know, Christian school and a radio station, and they do um, women's health care, and all of that is centraled on preaching the gospel all of those things are intended to point back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we have works in India and Pakistan that are going well. And, you know, if you know about the historic relationship between India and Pakistan, um, you know, that's not uh, a good relationship historically as far as nations go. Yet these congregations, it was reported, are taking collections for each other to help each other's mission field. And that really shows us something of, of who we're called to be as the body of Christ. Um, we heard from uh, the CASA committee, which was formed into a commission for the purpose of ordaining and installing ministers in Chile so that a, a Chilean congregation or a Chilean presbytery can be organized uh, there's work in Bolivia going on. There's a lot of work in South America in the RPCNA. And then we also heard from uh, churches in East Asia. And East Asia is, is uh, in quotes, it, I, it's, uh, um, it's to represent uh, one of the Asian nations. And uh, in that Asian nation, we have about 30,000 Reformed Presbyterians and they're divided into two presbyteries. So that's a lot of underground work that's going on there, um, work that we've been asked to not um, talk about online and things, so I won't, I won't give too much details. But uh, um, about 30,000 RPs, and that includes um, uh, ruling elders that are being trained and semin seminary students that are being trained and ministers that are being ordained, a lot of really exciting stuff going on going on there. So that's our, that's some of just a touch of our international work. There was also some news coming out of Beaver Falls and Pittsburgh regarding 
both Geneva College and the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, respectively. Fill us in on the developments in the leadership and faculty at those two fine institutions. Jerry O'Neill has recently retired as president of the seminary, and Barry York, who a number of years ago was brought on as a professor of practical theology, primarily in preaching, uh, has now uh, taken on the role as pa- uh, president of the seminary, so we're very thankful for that. And then David Whitla, Uh, who is an RP pastor. For the last couple of years, he's been studying over in Northern Ireland to get his PhD in Covenanter history, Uh, was nominated, and uh, he he was sustained to be uh, the uh, church history professor at RPTS. So that's going to be a wonderful addition. He's going to hopefully finish up his PhD in the next year. Yeah, and then out of of Geneva College, uh, we we heard from Calvin Traup, who is our new president. I guess he's been for... Is it two years, gentlemen, that he's been president? And he's a he's a ruling elder in the greater Pittsburgh area. And he also has a, he has a Ph.D. in um, ancient uh, studies. He has a he's an Augustine scholar. And uh, so it's great to hear from from him. There's a lot of good things going on at Geneva College. And I would note also that uh Geneva College has opened a campus in Shanghai. So there are there are students, Chinese students in Shanghai that are studying at a distance campus of Geneva College and they do uh, part of their study at in Shanghai and then they uh, come to Beaver Falls for the culture shock of their life to uh, to finish out their college degree at uh, Geneva College there. So some some great things going on from both of our educational institutions. When a new man is brought onto the faculty at RPTS, what is the process for examining him? Does the whole synod participate in that, or is it a, a unilateral decision and pro- uh, procedure followed by the institution? Great question, Zach. We have a board uh, that, uh, for our seminary, and they have an initial interview, and then uh, based on their recommendation, the man is put forward to the Synod. Uh, The Synod has uh, opportunity to uh, write in and ask questions, and those questions are answered on the floor, and then there's a time given for people to get up and ask more questions. Uh, Typically, they'll also have the candidate um, teach a class or demonstrate uh, a particular class on the subject that he is uh, looking to go into the field he's going into, and then we take a uh, a floor vote, um, up or down. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Then they're put on the nom they're put on the nominating, um, put to the nominating committee ballot. by ballot. That's right. Sorry, by ballot they're voted up or down. Is that for all faculty or just full professors? Full full professors, and they, it requires a 66 percent vote. Uh, from the Senate. So if they... yeah, 66.6. If they get that two-thirds vote, then they're in. Um, Part part of the change is also coming in the the seminaries. We have a a few more guys who are going to be retiring or stepping aside. Adjunct professors at our seminary can be appointed. Um, So Jack Kinnear, who's in the PCA, uh, has been serving in our New Testament as our New Testament department. 
Um, and that's a position that's going to be filled by an RP uh, in the coming years. So we've that's part of the, the inner church relations we were talking about a little bit ago plays out in our seminary is we have great men from other uh, sister denominations helping fill posts. And um, as the Lord blesses within our ranks, then we can have those men serve in those positions as well. Yeah, and all of that, Zach, goes back to the fact that our our seminary is under under the synod. You know, we have a denominational seminary, so that's something that's different from you know our OPC brethren or URC uh, brethren. And uh, because our seminary is under the the control of the synod, we do want to be able to have a say in who the faculty are that are going to be training our next generation of. Of men, I mean, you know enough about Presbyterian church history to know that when when the seminary falls, the, eventually the denomination falls. It's very rare for a seminary to turn around and then have a denomination turn around. Usually, the the fall into liberalism starts in the seminary, and the RPCNA has done a, a good job over the last two hundred and eight years of uh, having a handle on what's going on within our denominational seminary. Yeah, there's definitely concurrent um, concurrent movements in, in church history in denominations and their seminaries and the dynamics between them. But in, in general, the, uh, the the causation relationship, the relationship of causation, does start with the seminary because they're producing the future ministers of the denomination. And as those men go into the denomination, then they shape uh, what decisions are made for the seminary in the future. Well, we will continue to pray for RPTS and for Geneva College. Geneva College especially has taken a, a stand for um, private Christian education at, in the higher education sphere um, that that really has been admirable and also, thankfully, has found a measure of success in, in the courts of the civil magistrate. And uh, we, we thank the Lord for, for Geneva College and the RPCNA um, really engaging in the public square in that way, because what they're doing and the decisions that are being rendered are an encouragement to really Christian education everywhere around the country. This is my last question. I, this is how I, I sum up or, or kind of put it out there for all of my denominational debriefs, and each of you guys are welcome to take a stab at it if you want. What was the single most encouraging takeaway from Synod for you, and about what ought we to be concerned for the RPCNA, and are there any other final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think the most encouraging thing for me, uh, serving on business of Synod, it's not that no one else is thinking about these things as we go into them, but we're thinking about the mechanics of schedule and and all of this. And, and I was really encouraged watching the Synod uh, kind of shift gears in a sense. I'm coming up on 10 years in, in the Synod, and we haven't had a lot of heavy business before us in years past. Um, and watch them shift gears and handle things in a very somber, loving, careful way this year in the midst of some difficult um, matters was a real encouragement. Um, I, I would also say, you know, we in no way speak officially for the Senate of the RPCNA. We're just the Jerusalem Chamber guys. And um, I would encourage your listeners, if they have friends or family who are RPCNA, to talk to them and, and get get differ, different or 
just a, another angle on the things that are going on in our church. Um, and if they don't have friends or family that are RPCNA, well then shame on them. They should go out and make some RP friends. Um, we, we can be found. Uh, but There's, there's uh, hundreds of us. There's hundreds of us. Um, there's a good hundred in the millions of L.A. So um, I, I think that for me, Zach, was the one thing that really was meaningful, was watching these men handle something that is very difficult because of that relational aspect. And even we had men who disagreed along the way and they um, you know, made their objections known. And that's good too. That's also Presbyterianism that we, we don't seek to squash uh, you know, one voice. We let the voices be heard, but we let the Lord work through the courts of the church and the order of the church. So um, that for me was very encouraging. For, for me, the encouraging thing was to see Presbyterian operative, you know, my good friend, Nathan Eshelman, I think some of you know Great him, guy. Um, has often reminded me that Presbyterianism exists because disagreements exist in the church, um, you know, and, and sometimes, and, and we thank God that we have not been drawn into many waters of conflict and difficulty as a denomination but it was, I grew up in a very broad evangelical church where there was no way to address conflict and there was no way to address disagreements. Um, there was not an orderly or biblical way to do that. And uh, the majority would always drown out the minority. Um, and so it was very encouraging to me. Uh, we talked about the judicial case. We didn't talk much about the complaint. Um, and, and yet two minority voices got a very broad and I think a very fair hearing um, in, in this court as, as synod met. And to me, that is encouraging. And I know, as Joel said, not everybody agreed. Um, we don't always agree on who's qualified for the ministry. Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15 did not agree on whether John Mark was qualified for the ministry. But, uh, what, what I think we did see at the synod at the end of the day was a very orderly way in which the voice of the minority was heard. And I think heard very fairly in a very balanced way, in a very judicious way, in a way that pursued both mercy and justice. Um, and, and that's just very encouraging. And I would say real quick, Zach, you also said, you know, what are some concerns? What can people be praying for? Uh, the RPCNA is still dealing with questions about what our form of subscription is and what it means to believe in and accept the system of doctrine and manner of worship set forth in our standards. And that's a very significant question that is going to be surfacing again and again, I think, in the coming years in our denomination. I was encouraged, uh, again, through the, the judicial process uh, that went on. I guess Joel and Kyle both mentioned parts of this, but, you know, as I came home from Synod and uh, wrote my congregation a little bulletin insert as to what what happened at synod um, you know I I know that in that some congregations are dealing with uh, fallout from from the uh, the judicial actions of of the synod and there's a lot of hurt and uh, even some disappointment for for some as to what uh, as to what went on but when I came home to my congregation, uh, many of the questions that I had from members and officers within my church had to do with how the quote-unquote confessional men handled themselves 
on the floor of synod, and that that was a concern. Are are the men that that do uh, love and um, talk about and maybe to some degree are obsessed with the Westminster standards? How do they present themselves on the floor of synod? And I was happy to say to my congregation that men were very gracious. And there's something to be said about uh, men that um, that sometimes are seen as sticklers for rules and sticklers for uh, you know a particular order and maybe a little too doctrinally focused and all of these things that sometimes accusations are made. Uh, these men were godly and gracious, and uh, that I believe is evidence that um, that congregations in the RPCNA that are led by these men uh, will flourish as the gospel goes forth. Um, you asked about concern. I would say my only concern with Synod was for whatever reason, whoever was in charge of housing put the four of us men in one townhouse together. And uh, there's probably a better way to handle things. But uh. There has to be because some of us tried to go to bed at 1130 and the lights were turned on and people sat at the foot of our bed and talked for the next several hours. And no matter how much Kyle covered his head with his two blank panther <laughs> pillowcase pillows, he couldn't get back to sleep. Sean, did you have any thoughts that you wanted to chime in with? Oh, I, I agree with the brothers. Um, in, in, starting with concern, uh, you know, we, we are, a, if you understand the ethos of our denomination, we're a we're a family denomination. Uh, we do um, uh, re- relational um, ways of dealing with things is really important, and it's always been a concern. Um, well, not always. Sorry, in the last decade, it's been a real concern uh, as we've seen more men come into the RPCNA from from outside of uh, congregations, from outside of family relations. Two-thirds of our ministry, if not more at this point, are first-generation, second-generation RPs, uh, and that was not always the case. And so how? what's the dynamic going to be? How is that going to uh, affect our denomination? And there was a concern that uh, the relational aspect might trump our doctrinal integrity. Now, that, you know, just to be fair, like that's not always a conversation that's helpful to, or that the people want to have. But that is something that we have talked about in certain contexts. When, when in reality, uh, these were cases of doctrinal integrity, and it was the relational uh, ethos of the denomination that really helped us work through the doctrinal integrity. And we, we can be really thankful for um, the, the long-term uh, relational emphasis of our denomination. And we want to see these things wedded together. Uh, and so, um, this was a real, this was a real challenge for our denomination. And I think God gave us a lot of grace and help. Uh, and so that, that's what I would say. I was just very encouraged by that, uh, in terms of, um, you know, what to be uh, concerned about. Um, <laughs> now we have particular concerns as, deno- as a denomination that others might not be concerned with. And that is, as we're seeing growth, again, God's grace, uh, you know, um, uh, 
I don't know what the particular numbers are, but it'd be interesting to look at how many congregations are uh, didn't exist in the 1960s that exist today. Probably maybe more congregations in our denomination are that young. And, and so, again, that's, that's a work of God. Uh, and, and at the same time, as we continue to grow, um, where, where we can possibly end up suffering is uh, in, our, in our own synods, how we act, where we suffer is how to move forward, how to get through all the business. Um, and so one motion that did come up this year uh, was that we moved to electronic voting uh, and we've tried that before and it got shut down immediately in 2011. Uh, we'll, we'll see if that will really help us. So those are concerns that we might have internally. How are we going to get through all of our business and how are we going to make sure everyone's heard and how are we going to make sure that um, uh, the relational side doesn't actually clog us up? Um, those, those are some just my thoughts. Yeah, for what it's worth, um, Wayne Sparkman, the the historian for the PCA, recently gave me some data in a chart that then I or a table that I then shared on social media, where he looked at the OPC, the PCA, the RPCNA, and and growth of those churches. So congregation numerical growth, uh, number of congregations from 1980 through to today. Of course, with the PCA number that included the RPCES. Uh, right before merger, or joining and receiving, I should say. But the RPCNA posted probably the the most, um, perhaps the most impressive proportional growth considering where it started. It had a lot of uh, lot of provinces in Canada and and states here in the United States that went from zero congregations at all in the state or province to at least one. But your overall growth from 1980 to today was 67 congregations to 104 um, as of July 6, 2018. So I don't know what's included in the 104, if that includes preaching stations and things, but this is data from from Mr. Sparkman, and um, you know I, I, I don't anticipate a slowdown in the growth of the RPCNA as technology and, and book publishing, particularly publishing of old books that have been out of print for a long time, continues to proliferate and a- attract men who maybe became... Reformed or exposed to Reformed teachings through Ligonier or the PCA or the EPC or, or some other body, but then end up uh, discovering the rich uh, theological heritage uh, represented in the RPCNA and then, and then are attracted to one of your congregations. I did see that map as well. I did see that map as well. And uh, while, while we're very thankful for uh, all those congregations seeing growth and, and Presbyterian um, influence spreading throughout our country— uh, all the more we want to pray for um, godliness and uh, reformation of these churches, that we would be faithful to uh, the scriptures and to God. Absolutely, and that that's right now in, in my church, in the PCA, uh, the raging discussion is, okay, we're, we're still growing, we're still fast-growing and, and everything, but um, are we still distinctively Presbyterian? And and are we are we being are we conducting ourselves with integrity and in how we represent ourselves and proclaim the message that we've been entrusted with? I don't see that same problem in the RPCNA, but of course we must always be vigilant to pray for Christ's church, no matter how large or how small it is at the congregational level, the regional level, or the national level, or international. 
level. Men, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a pleasure and a great joy to have all four of you. And I think that just as um, Dr. McGraw logged the longest ever episode for the Jerusalem Chamber, you men have uh, returned the favor, as it were, and this may be the longest ever episode of Confessing Our Hope (laughs) when all is said and done. But I've enjoyed it, and um, I commend you all in your service to Christ's Church. Well, Zach, thank thank you for having us, and uh, I hope that when this gets aired that you still have a job after choosing to have the Jerusalem Chamber on Confessing Our Hope. And then I should also note that um, you should maybe take the four of us, our names, out of the running for the next president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As much as we love the seminary, we we think maybe it would be best for not none of us to serve as the next president. So you can just have our name removed. Nathan, thank you so much for for saying that. The, that that makes my job a lot easier. I don't have to, you know, worry about breaking the news to you all that the board's not interested. Okay. okay. <laughs> don't call us. No, to, to, we'll call you. No, I have yeah. uh, I have recently spoken to Dr. Piper as we've added a few RPCNA students to uh, to our student body, um, Zach Thundervoice Dotson, and this fall, Sean Holm, Lord willing, incoming as a distance student. Uh, I said, we should consider having an RP man on the board. And he said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was last week. So I don't, I don't know. Um, so may- maybe, maybe we'll see a nomination of an ordained man in the RP. Yeah, well, he doesn't have to wear a bow tie. Trust me. <laughs> How how do we interpret yeah? Is that like when your kid says we should go to Disney this week? You say yeah. Then just <laughs> I think there's a genuine interest here. It's just a matter of identifying um, a man who would be willing and able to serve on the Greenville board coming out of the RPCNA. And I hope I'm not spilling beans or anything, but it is something I'm excited about because we have a very ecumenical board, but it's a board united in the truth and united in the value of confessional subscription and theology. So, um, men, thank you again for joining me. I'll leave it at that, and I encourage all of my listeners to subscribe to the Jerusalem Chamber and to join them in their study through the Westminster Confession of Faith as well as uh, the occasional scholar and writer interview. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.